We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Beekeeping on the roof of Lime Ridge Mall. Yeah, since April 2022, a hive of honeybees has called a 500-square-foot section of the roof, the southeast corner of the Upper Wentworth Street Mall home. Bees on top of Lime Ridge, and it's all a plan. Kelsey Bartlett with his operations supervisor at CF Lime Ridge. And here now, Kelsey, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Hi, Scott. I'm doing great. Thanks so much for hosting me today. This is a pretty cool story. How did this all come about? How did we end up with bees on Lime Ridge Mall? Well, I had the pleasure of walking in to a program that was already well underway. Our focus from the beginning has been to support green initiatives that members of our community are already doing. Uh, If you take a walk around our neighborhood, you'll see a lot of pollination plants and a lot of solar panels. So it felt like the natural next step for us to start making use of some of our footprint here. So how do you get so somebody just said, hey, why don't we have beehives up on the roof? I mean, how does that work? Yeah, I mean, I think it's inspiration through the neighborhood. We start to see some green roofs popping up in different industries. Uh, We partnered Mm -hmm. with a company called Alveol, and they provide pretty much turnkey operations for us. And then we care for our bees between their visits. So uh, explain, describe the scenario, what it's like there up on the roof, uh, who gets to do it, who keeps it, what what, what is the daily uh, maintenance of a beehive? Uh, Tell us as much as you can. Wonderful. So our bees are pretty self-sufficient. Right now, as you said, we have a small rooftop area set up for them. We've also put planters around their beehives so that they have a closer source of food for days they may be feeling a little too tired to get out and about. Uh, We also provide them with fresh water and we check in to make sure that the hive is not tipped over and that the face of the hive is always facing southwest like they like. And then from there, it's just pretty much we get to enjoy them. So uh, what about honey, harvest time, all of that stuff? It's coming up in the next few weeks. Ray Deneen, our beekeeper from Alveol, will be up on the roof in full gear. Um, Our bees are extremely happy. For a hive our size, you can typically expect anywhere between 60 and 80 jars of honey. Last year, they produced 100 and we're on track for another wonderful harvest. Wow, that's amazing. And what do you do with the honey? Last year, we shared it with the in-house teams. The ultimate goal is to start to give back to different groups in the community. Uh, Mm. Our plan for the next few years is to create a safe, guided opportunity for local school kids to come up with their classes and really learn about how bees benefit us and how honey ends up on their table. So you want to work this into some sort of tour in some way in the future? Absolutely. I mean, we're still early days, but our goal, like it said in the the wonderful feature piece that was in the Hamilton spec, we'd love a lush oasis. We already have our team members enjoying their lunches up there. Uh, We've hosted some educational sessions through Alveol for the team. And our hopes and dreams are to extend it to anyone who's interested in the community. So uh, talk a little bit more about what you do hope to do in the future. It sounds like you're sort of uh, uh, working on a, a rooftop utopia here. That's absolutely it. So currently we do have some plants and picnic tables Uh, for next season. We'll be installing some shade structure and then we're going to start to go a little bit vertical with some raspberries and tomato plants. And hopefully we're going to be sourcing all of these plants from our team members gardens. And uh, I'll ask a very blunt question. What's in this for Lime Ridge Mall? Um, Other than getting to be part of something super exciting. 
Um, I think that we've always been very green focused. We know that it's important to our guests. They're very passionate. We get asked all the time how our bees are doing. So I think it's really just about bringing us closer to the community, which has been our goal since 1981. And all part of um, the ever-changing mall landscape. Is that accurate, Kelsey? Totally. We realize that malls are often the focal point of our communities, and it's up to us to not just support what they're already doing, but sometimes lead by example and give people ideas that they might not have had. Can we follow this at all? Is there a social media angle to this at this point? There sure is. So if you go onto the Alveol website, that's A-L-V, E with an accent, O-L-E, and type in Lime Ridge Mall, it'll bring up what's called our My Hive page. And you can closely follow our bees in particular, as well as what our beekeeper is doing at other properties. So it's a great educational bee uh, piece, and it also drums up some excitement. Kelsey Bartlett with us, operations manager at CF Lime Ridge. Uh, they got a beehive on the roof, 500 square feet section, uh, just specifically for honeybees. And my goodness, uh, keep checking in because it looks like this is going to be a growing operation. Great idea, Kelsey. Uh, thanks so much for the time. Good luck. Thanks for having me. Have a wonderful day. You know, it's certainly not the first time we've talked about um, government spending, and, and especially now in a post-pandemic world with uh, high interest rates, uh, inaf- uh, unaffordability, uh, housing shortages and such, groceries through the roof, uh, fuel, what have you. Uh, once again, we're talking about the Governor General. Uh, Mary Simon's travel costs taxpayers more than $2.7 million last year. Uh, let's bring in Franco Terrazano, Canadian Taxpayers Federation Federal Director. He's here now. Franco, thank Thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Hey, thanks for having me on today. Sounds like a broken record here, Franco, because it, it, it seems we talk about this every year. Oh, it sure does. Every year. It seems like you have me on the show like almost every month to talk about the wasteful spending uh, in the government, if not yeah. under Rideau Hall's nose. Right. And look, this one is a crazy story because we found that the governor general in one year, in 12 months, folks, spent almost three million bucks on travel costs. Almost three million bucks is the cost of taxpayer, you, me, and all your listeners for a governor general, Mary Simon's travel in one year. Now, how does the, gov- the governor general rack up a uh, almost three million dollar tab in 12 months flying abroad and domestically? Well, it's because the governor general and her entourage racked up a hundred thousand dollars on fancy airplane food to a week-long trip to the Middle East. They spent $71,000 on ice limos during a four-day trip to Iceland. Um, They bring around entourage that sometimes is about 30 people, right? Think about how much that costs to feed people to get them abroad. And they like to stay in fancy hotels in far-flung countries, like the Ritz-Carlton in Berlin, like the Great Scotland Yard in London, or like the Emirate Towers in Dubai. So the extravagance means more money that taxpayers have to fork over to send the governor general and her bureaucrats all around the world. Uh, Again, as I said, Franco, we've talked about this many times. Um, Is there and even with the last governor general, is is there not anything or has there or was there not anything done to kind of rein this in to monitor it a bit more closely? Because it's an open wound every year, it seems. Okay, so let me let me put two things on the table here for your listeners. So number one, all of this spending, right, almost three million dollar cost for the governor general's travel in one year. That's pretty bad. But the worst part of this whole story is the National Post was the first to cover this story. Okay, and when they covered this story, 
Did the governor general apologize? No. The governor general's comms team, her bureaucrats, are now lashing out at the media for reporting on all this wasteful spending. So what they should be doing is apologizing, saying, hey, we're sorry for wasting your money while you're struggling on expensive hotels, on these expensive international trips, on this expensive airplane food. But they're not doing that. They're upset that Canadians are finding out the truth about how much they're spending and what they're spending their money on. It's almost like they feel entitled to waste their money on these lavish trips. Now, uh, one interesting thing that the Governor General's comms team did say is that it's Global Affairs Canada that oversees the international travel budget. So now taxpayers need to point the finger at our Foreign Affairs Minister, Melanie Jolie. So um, I was just about to ask, where's the Prime Minister on this? But now I guess it's where is Melanie Jolie on this? Well, that's exactly right. Okay, so I guess, look, I think the Prime Minister, uh, Justin Trudeau, he's obviously the head of our of our democratic country, right? So whenever you have a waste of, uh, of money that's going on, especially one that we see over and over again, of course, the Prime Minister should step in. He needs to step in. But I think the direct person who is responsible of this, obviously, is the Governor General, right? She is the representative of her head of state. She should show leadership. But it's also the Foreign Affairs Minister. Melanie Jolie, <laughs> okay? Um, not to mention the government claims that it's looking for savings in, in its departments. Well, then I think the first place that Jolie should be looking for savings is cutting back the governor general's travel budget. Uh, interesting, considering that's what exactly is coming out of the Treasury Department. Um, what are we getting for this money? What uh, you know, and, and I understand that you know a, a lot of this is show and go, and 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 that's all part of the game. But what are what, what are Canadians actually getting out of this role? What tangible benefit? I have no idea. Like I have no idea what tangible benefit we get when the Governor General and thirty people fly to Dubai for Expo twenty twenty and spend almost $100,000 on airplane food. That includes like beef wellington with jus, stuffed pork tenderloin, uh, and all these different fancy feasts that they're having. I have no idea what tangible benefit we're actually getting. Also, folks, okay, the more I hear about this story, the more that this question comes to mind. The Governor General of Canada is the king or queen's representative to Canada. Mm-hmm. So why is the Governor General flying to Dubai for Expo 2020? Right. If King Charles or the Queen or whomever is the head of the monarchy wants to go to Expo 2020 in Dubai, why aren't they going or why aren't they paying for someone to go to be the representative? Why are Canadian taxpayers shelling out about a million bucks for that week long trip for the king or queen's representative to Canada to go? Like, that's my question. Uh, you talked about Anita Anand and and in her new role in Treasury and such, and and just after the cabinet shuffle, she almost immediately announced that everybody's got to be trimming their budget. You alluded to that. Um, does the Governor General see a budget cut in that? I hope so. I mean, I hope so. Or or, or whatever departments are in charge of all of this. I mean, come on. It, like, if you have enough money on your hands to, like I say, spend almost a hundred k on airplane food during a week-long trip or $71,000 on ice limos during a four-day trip to Iceland where the hotel was an eight-minute walk away from the conference center, or if you have all this money lying around to rack up almost $3 million in 12 months on international travel, 
you have too much taxpayers money on your hand and you're not spending it wisely like let me just give your listeners one final comparison here okay so julie payette the former governor general she was not known for being frugal or being fiscally responsible absolutely not it took her 29 months to spend almost three million bucks on travel governor general mary simon spent almost three million bucks on travel in 12 months so this is just getting out of hand do we hear anything more yet, Franco, on the Queen's uh, funeral and, and expenses or hotel rooms in and around that? Uh, nope. Or so sorry, no, not the Queen's funeral. Uh, sorry, sorry. Out and we were... I was referring also to uh, King Charles' coronation as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, sorry. That's that's what I thought. Uh, so we have been submitting ATIPs, right? Uh, we're waiting to get them back. But at this so point, we'll let nothing. everyone know when we get the receipts back. All right. So um, is there any reason to believe, Franco, that any of this will change? Because, again, whether it's this governor general or the last one or the one before that, these are ongoing conversations and often come up when Canadians are discussing the relevance of the monarchy. Uh, and, And I think this has a lot to do with it. No, I think there is going to be change. I really do. Um, Because, look, we do have a committee that is feeling so much pressure from both the media and the media's audience, like the people listening to your show, but also just from everyday taxpayers. I'm hearing from members of parliament in Ottawa that are on this committee looking into the governor general spending that they are feeling the pressure and at sometimes feeling a pressure like they don't on other different issues. So I think they're getting the message. They've already dragged the governor general's bureaucrats back to committee to answer for some of the spending. They've already forced the governor general and previous governor generals to release information related to previous international trips. So I have a feeling that if we keep the pressure on, uh, groups like ours, or the media, and, and Canadians more broadly, if we keep the pressure on, I think the government's going to have uh, no choice but to cut back on some of this extravagance. Franco Terrazano with us, Canadian Taxpayers Federation Federal Director, Governor General, spending $2.7 million on travel last year. Franco, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Hey, thanks for having me on today. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Lots of chatter around uh, the tent encampments, how what we do, how we get out of the housing situation, the the, the crisis that we're in. Uh, part of that discussion, tiny homes, um, and, and obviously started to move forward. Then all of a sudden, a location pops up which wasn't on the original list. Has many concerned about how this process worked and how we got to where we are. The location in and around Leuna and the CN or the rail yards that are in that area. To talk more about this, let's bring in Victoria Manson. Alley, Director of Public Relations, Marketing, Strategic Partnerships with the Laborers International Union of North America and here now. Victoria, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Absolutely. I'm doing well. Thanks. How are you? Good. Thank you so much. So first, Victoria, talk about exactly where this is and what your concerns are. Well, to be honest, we don't know where this is because we have been left in the dark, which is concern number one. You know, this is not opposing the concept of tiny homes. We are extremely sensitive to the complexities of our ongoing homelessness issue and encampments in the city of Hamilton and, quite frankly, right across the country. But having this pilot be successful must come with collaboration and deep understanding and support from the surrounding community. And by streamlining this decision at council without any consultation with the members that both live and work in this uh, community of the proposed tiny home site. 
has now created a deep divide and a deep level of understanding as to why this site came to be. Uh, so uh, that being said, what is it about this site that's wrong? Obviously, it wasn't on the initial list. You said you don't know where the site is, yet we're referring to it. Um, and it's a piece of, of, of paved land that's that's in the in this area that we're speaking of. Um, that being said, it, obviously, is the concern that this wasn't on the initial list and the proper consultation study has not been done yet? Correct. Yeah. Concern number one is that there was zero consultation. But, you know, looking at the proposed site, and it has been said both publicly as well that it's small, it's going to be a tight squeeze for 25 of these homes, and that is adjacent to schools, to recreation centers, the CN Rail, of course, Leuna Station, um, from homes and schools, and the proposed site of another affordable housing unit as well. So it's been listed as not a desirable site, yet for whatever reason, this is the site that had been chosen. So we don't know how uh, we got from other uh, strategic sites to this one. Who who made that decision that this was the place to go, even though it wasn't on the original list? We would love to know that answer. (laughs) So where does this go from here? Where, Where are you now with this? Well, you know, we have made our concerns public. Um, If anybody is on Twitter today, I'm sure you have seen the back and forth between us and numerous uh, community members who have also, you know, voiced their support at the lock of consultation. We know on Saturday, Ward 2 Councilor will now be holding a public consultation. But why does that public consultation have to only come after an uproar from the community, neighbors and business? Why couldn't this have been strategically planned and been proactive and collaborative listen to the concerns of the community and then let's move forward together you know in order to address the homelessness issue in our city we have to work in collaboration you know it can't be a streamlined decision by city creating this divide a lack of transparency and then say oh well too bad we still need your support if we're going to move forward we have to move forward together and that comes with having conversations it's not going to be easy we're not going to get everybody on the same page but, you know, doing this in backroom deals at the city and then saying, well, now we'll have your input because we know that you're upset. That's not the way to do it. Uh, is the reason, do you think, for this because the other housing project is having difficulty getting through? Um, possibly. You know, that's, I think, more of a question for city planning and, and the local city council or sorry, city councillor. Yeah. Um, but again, like, you know, we've seen, I think Sir John A was a proposed site and that didn't work. There was another site and that didn't work. And now it's left to this site. And we have a lot of questions that, you know, should have probably been answered prior to this becoming, you know, the definite site. And you know, where's the, the running water coming from? Where so- are going to be, if there's a safety concern, where does that come into play? You know, we've had issues on, the Luna Station property with the current encampments already. And mm. we've been dealing it with little to zero support from the city already. So how are we you know, going to be rest assured that we will have support should something happen and the community will have support and the people living in the tiny homes here will have the support? There's no guarantee because we haven't seen any level of involvement from the city when there's been an issue currently on this proposed site. All right, Victoria, here comes the burning question, and I'm going to play devil's advocate here. (laughs) NIMBYism, is this NIMBYism? Everybody's not in my backyard, you know. What are your thoughts? 
No, I, I don't think it's nibbyism as well at, at all. Sorry. We want to see this succeed. We do not want this to be a failed project when we know that this has the potential to impact so many lives. So we don't want this to be a quick uh, a quick fix or a Band-Aid fix. We want long-term tangible solutions that are going to require participation from community members as well. We want this to be successful. And it has to be successful only in a location that makes sense where this can take off and where it can be a long-term solution. Victoria Mancinelli with us, Director of Public Relations, Marketing, Strategic Partnerships with the Labor's International Union of North America, talking about the Tiny Shelters plan for Hamilton's North End. Uh, Victoria, thanks so much for the time. Good luck. Thank you so much. Have a good one. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Celebrations in India, they become the fourth country to reach the moon and the first to land a probe on the southern pole of the moon. Why does the south pole of the moon matter? How come they're the first? Let's bring in Paul Delaney, Professor Emeritus, Faculty of Science, Department of Physics and Astronomy, York University, and here now. Paul, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am indeed, Scott. Always nice to join you. So this is uh, obviously a big deal. India's celebrating, and I guess the more the merrier in this. But what's the significance of the South Pole, especially, uh, I guess, water there or signs of water? Does that help with this whole leapfrog to Mars? Hmm. Good question with respect to the leapfrog to Mars. Certainly the idea of putting a settlement proximate to ice. Ice, of course, can turn into water. Water can turn into oxygen. Water can turn into fuel. If you don't have to take all that to the moon, that's a huge, huge saving as far as you know the payload uh, equation is concerned. So that's why everybody is all of a sudden very excited about the South Pole. When we started going to the moon back 50 years ago, we hung out in the equatorial regions because that seemed to be the obvious place to understand the moon. But now that we're seriously talking about settlements, Ice is a big deal, and so the South Pole has become quite the focus. And India, as you said, is now the fourth nation to land on the moon and to give us our first up-close-and-personal views of the South Pole. Will that help us going to Mars? Well, probably, because you build the infrastructure on the moon, you are successful in maintaining a, a base of some description there that's got to make it easier for you to go to Mars. Is this a coordinated effort from the four countries that are all involved in this sort of thing? Um, Why was India the first to go to the South Pole? Why not others there first? Well, of course, Russia tried to be the first uh, nation down there uh, with their Luna 25 vehicle, and that crashed onto the moon last week. Probably an indication of they're a little rusty doing those sorts of things because, you know, they haven't done it for 50 years. Uh, The Artemis Accords, India, NASA, and many other nations, they are coordinating their efforts. NASA, as you know, is very uh, focused on their Artemis missions, but they are supporting a lot of other private endeavors. They were a part of the Japanese effort to get... uh, to the moon's surface earlier this year. They've been a part of the Indian effort, not to take anything away from India. It was a homegrown mission. But there is a degree of collaboration going on at the moment with our collective return to the moon, which I think is a really good thing. So in other words, we'll do this, you do that, you do that, and then we'll all collaborate and see what we learn together. Yeah, in that, that's exactly right. The, the uh, mission objectives are couched and written in a way that the information they gain from their efforts on the moon will funnel back and help build a foundation for, as I say, Artemis and a uh, more permanent residence 
on the moon. So it, it's a big difference to the way we went to the moon 50 years ago. But Russia is not really a part of that at the moment. They're a pariah, as you well know, for a variety mm. of reasons. Uh, but the international community as a whole, India, uh, Russia, uh, sorry, India, Japan, Korea, NASA, uh, they are, all, well, obviously Canada as well, are all collaborating in a very positive sense. Uh, where's China in this story? Yeah, I, I, I sort of <laughs> threw that in there because that's my yeah. wish that they were a part of it. They are not openly uh, opposed to what is happening, but the U.S. political situation has basically written China collaboration out of the space equation for the near right. future. And so they are not a part of this effort. They are going it alone. Theoretically, Russia is meant to be a part of the China effort going to the moon, but they're very much the silent partner, Russia, at the moment. But China has certainly made strides. They've got two probes on the moon, one rover operational, and they are expecting to put Takanauts on the moon by 2030. And I would not be at all surprised to see that happen. Uh, ice and water, the reasons to go to the South Pole. Um, what about harvesting of minerals? How much does, or harvesting of anything from the moon to bring back? Uh, we understand there's stuff up there that, that is a value here. Uh, how far away are we away from that? I would think that we're still probably a decade away, but there is lots of interest in that. Uh, certainly the, the mineral aspect, the mining aspect, it's going to put the uh, Outer Space Treaty of the UN to a real test, shall we say. Mm. But yeah. the idea of mining resources on the moon is on many people's agendas, both private companies, SpaceX and so on, as well as the International Consortium. I would think that we're probably about 10 years away from seeing a real effort in that regard. You've got to get to the moon with a, 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 an established settlement of some description. You just can't go up there, mine for a few days and then come back. Yeah. It's not going to work that way. You've got to be on the moon in a stable fashion. And that's why the current effort to get to the South Pole with the Artemis 3 mission uh, sort of two years away it'll be really interesting to see how all that gels to create that permanent settlement and the moment that happens you are going to see uh, a stampede not uh dissimilar to uh wagons west in the old u.s 200 yeah. years ago yeah it's uh, it does it reminds you of of, of you know uh, sailing the ocean blue discovering new worlds and and of course laying claim to all of that um uh, it's so laying claim assume- which is going to be the challenge yeah. uh, both you know economically politically as well as legally so the harvesting of minerals on the moon is that for use on the moon that they can develop up there or would they actually transport stuff back uh, well, that's a good question. I suspect that uh, we will find a way to harvest and to refine and send the refined goods back to Earth. Uh, initially, it's going to wow. be an expensive outlay, but it would not at all surprise me to see those costs come down. It depends what we end up finding there. You're not going to find you know, fossil fuels and so on because there was never any life on the moon, but there is lots and lots of other material up there, which is you know, basically garden variety earth material that could be very, very profitable. And the same statement applies to asteroids as well. And there's a lot of groups that are looking carefully at near-earth asteroids for mining options. So yeah, it's going to be a very, very interesting future, I'd say about 10 years from now, from the mining and exploration perspective. Fascinating discussion. Paul Delaney with us, Professor Emeritus, Faculty of Science, Department of Physics and Astronomy, York University, India on the Moon at the South Pole. Uh, Paul, as always, thanks for the time. Be well.
Thank you, Scott. Cheers. We've been talking a lot post-pandemic about affordable affordability issues. Man, everything has gone through the roof, whether it's your groceries, uh, and you can spend an hour just on that alone, uh, whether it's fuel, whether it's uh, housing or interest rates, what have you. Uh, it, it has just got unbelievably expensive to live as everybody is talking about how much everything has gone up. But when you break it all down, what has gone up the most that you probably haven't thought of is taxes. The average Canadian family spent 45.3% of its income on taxes in 2022, more than housing, food, clothing costs combined. A new study finds published by the Fraser Institute, an independent, nonpartisan Canadian public policy think tank. To talk more about this, Jake Foss with us, senior economist with the Fraser Institute, and here now. Jake, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Thanks very much for having me on. Uh, this is an interesting analogy, Jake, um, because everybody's talking about, and they'll give you a grocery list of everything that has gone up and how much it has gone up in the last little while. But we don't often say, oh, my goodness, look how much our taxes. Well, I guess we do. Our, our taxes are going up. But to compare it to housing, food, and everything else, this is uh, the biggest expense. Do you think Canadians w- would find this? Uh, uh, do you think they'd be surprised? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I think part of the issue is that, you know, it can be challenging for Canadian families to calculate all the various taxes they pay, because not only do we pay personal income taxes, we also pay several different types of taxes, like property taxes, sales taxes, uh, fuel taxes, and the list goes on. Um, So I think a lot of the time this uh, flies under the radar because, you know, we don't necessarily calculate, you know, the total tax bill that we pay every year. So I think this is one of the big um, discussion points, I think, moving forward, too, because um, now taxes are the single largest expense for Canadian households. Uh, is it uh, one of the reasons we're not as concerned is that we don't realize that this is a huge expense in a Canadian household? Or is it, well, we are getting services, we're getting health care, we're getting whatever. So, you know, it's worth it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's an interesting discussion, too, because I think, you know, there is that that aspect of taxes do pay for important public services. Um, But I think, you know, the other part of the equation, too, is we also need to consider where the money is going and how effective that spending is, too. Um, So I think, you know, moving forward, I think there's probably going to be more discussion about, you know, value for tax dollars as well. Um, And then I also think, you know, people are preoccupied with other things, too, because, you know, we do have this rising cost of living with housing concerns or uh, with rising cost of food as well well um so you know the taxes might just be something that flies under the radar and, and people might not consider as much um, as some of the other expenses in their life too and now would this be perhaps more relevant jake because we are so conscious of how much everything is going up and then all of a sudden boom uh you guys put out a report that says it's not only that it's this too will this make us take a closer look at how much we are actually paying and the value we're getting for it yeah i mean i mean ultimately i mean with about 45 45- Five percent of the average family's income going to taxes. Um, you know, it certainly makes sense for the rising cost of living to be a source of anxiety. Um, but it's also important to recognize that the tax bill for families consumes a larger portion of their income than basic necessities like food, housing, and clothing combined. Um, so I think you know maybe we need to expand our scope of what's included in the definition of affordability too, because um, mm. certainly you know when we look at the expenses for a household, um, you know taxes is the single largest expense and it's also growing. Um, you know even just a few years ago it was forty. 
43% of the average family's income, and now it's 45%. So it's also uh, rising fairly rapidly, too. Uh, you bring up another point and maybe go over some of the stats about how much this has gone up. You were comparing back to 1961 because everybody in Canada knows they pay high taxes. What they may not realize is how much they've been going up in a short period of time. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, we have seen taxes rise faster than any of the other, um, you know, items that we looked at, like food or housing. Um, obviously, those amounts have also gone, gone up for families really across the board. Um, but we've seen, you know, a big, huge increase in, in the tax bill for the average family. Uh, it's increased almost 200% when we even when we adjust for inflation um, over time. Um, so, you know, taxes are really outpacing these other items like food, housing and clothing. Um, and now they're consuming a greater portion of your income than they used to in the 1980s or 1960s, for instance. Um, and there's been this significant trend upwards um, even though everything is going up, taxes are going up faster than everything else. Uh, and, and even when everything like pre-pandemic wasn't going up as fast as what we see, whether it's housing, mortgages, uh, groceries, what have you, these have been going up steadily. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we've really seen this trend um, for the last several decades um, in particular. Um, it actually used to be the case where um, housing, food and clothing um, constituted a, a greater portion of your income than taxes did. Um, mm. But that really changed in the 1980s and 1990s. And it's really only just uh, continued to change um, going the opposite direction. Um, so now taxes are just kind of growing even faster um, than, than what they were before a, a few decades ago. Um, and now we're seeing this you know, significant gap um, in terms of of, you know, how much families are actually spending on taxes versus, um, you know, spending about 36% of their income on food, housing and clothing combined. Um, so there, you know, there is this gap um, that's growing between the amount that families are spending on taxes versus those basic necessities too. What can we learn from this? What's the fallout of having to spend this much on that and not the other? Yeah, I think ultimately it's about getting the discussion going too about, you know, value for tax dollars, whether people think, um, you know, 45% is, is the right amount, it's too much, too little. Um, and ultimately, you know, that discussion about, you know, what types of services that people get in return for that, whether they they feel that they're getting that efficient um, spending from their governments to, and ultimately deciding, you know, and making that decision for yourselves if you're getting that value for your tax dollars. Um, so I think, you know, that's really the, the starting point, um, you know, doing research like this is just getting the discussion going for Canadians. And you bring up a valid point in the sense that, you know, when we think of tax, we think of sales tax, we think of income tax, because that's stuff we can relate to. We see it on our paycheck. We can see it on the on the receipt, the sales slip and such. But we don't realize how much other stuff we are getting or even tax more than once. Yeah, I think that's part of the problem, too, in, in calculating our total tax bill. There's a lot of like kind of hidden uh, taxes or fees that might be added on to. Um, so, you know, even, you know, people might th not think about, you know, liquor taxes or, um, you know, fuel taxes or even carbon taxes or other things like that, because they're not as readily available to us to, to see how much we're actually spending on that. Or it's just a small little line item on our receipt. Um, so we don't maybe pay as much attention to the, some of those items, um, whereas, you know, personal income taxes are a lot easier to kind of calculate. Um, but it's really difficult for, you know, families to calculate the total tax bill that they're spending, um, you know, sales taxes and other things, too. Um, so I think that's one of the, the issues, too, is that it's, a lot of this is hidden. 
how do governments wean themselves off of this? I can think of the development taxes. Well, I mean, we used to talk about those 10, 20 years ago. You know, uh, and Toronto needs a development tax on each end of the purchase. And uh, da, 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 da. And now when everybody's complaining that the houses, uh, whether it's shortages, whatever, the prices have gone through the roof. Now it's impossible for everybody to wean themselves off those development charges or extra hidden taxes. They, they, they're looking for other sources for that revenue now. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly an interesting discussion. I mean, especially in, in Ontario and, and British Columbia, especially with the housing situations that's going on there. Um, but, you know, we do know there are potential solutions that governments can look at. And sometimes that's even just governments getting out of their own way. So looking at zoning laws, um, looking at developer fees and other things to help speed up, um, you know, housing developments and also reduce the costs um, so that they can get them built faster and also um, increase the supply in the market so that they can match that demand over time. Um, so we do know, you know, there are potential solutions out there, um, but it's going to take a lot of effort on the on the part of municipalities and provinces and the federal government as well. The average Canadian spends 45.3% of its income on taxes. That's more than housing, food, and clothing costs combined. So says the Fraser Institute. Jake Fuss with a senior economist with the Fraser Institute. Jake, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks very much for having me on. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. Former President Donald Trump expected to surrender at Fulton County Jail on felony felony charges in regard to trying to overturn the 2020 presidential election results in Georgia. Eleven of the 19 defendants have already surrendered, and the district attorney has given all defendants until noon Friday to turn themselves in. So Donald Trump's going to go in at 7.30 p.m. Because it's got to be in prime time, I'm guessing. Let's ask Brian J. Karam, journalist, author, White House correspondent for Playboy and political analyst for CNN, is with us now. Brian, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Doing well. Just anticipating a prime time surrender. Is that what this is about? I mean, the judge said it is. (laughs) That's incredible. You know what they should do? They should lock the doors. So when he shows up with all the entourage, he's like, there's nobody there. It's like, no, sir, you got to come tomorrow. You got to come back tomorrow at 9 a.m. If you want to do this or or just arrest him or just if you want to be here, that's when you show up. That's right. Or, or that or just or just arrest him because he didn't make it in time. All right. So uh, enough of that. Give us although we're not far off the truth, I don't think uh, what um, what is happening now? What is expected to happen at 730? Uh, should we be watching Fox? <laughs> <laughs> well, he's pretty upset with Fox and his son went ballistic when Fox wouldn't let him in the uh, spin room last night after the debates because, you know, Trump didn't show up. But they feel like no rules, no laws apply to them. They can do whatever they want. And they're starting to find out that that's not necessarily the case. And I'm convinced that, you know, the more this progresses, the worse it's going to get for Donnie. And he's not going to be I don't believe he'll be on the ballot next year. And I think uh, last night you saw that. Uh, there are plenty. There are eight people there that can be just as crazy as Don. So uh, the GOP is going to be in fine shape without Donald Trump. What did you learn from the debates last night? Just to sidetrack for a sec. Well, what I learned from the debates last night is uh, at least at the very least, they all su- supported all eight people supported Mike Pence for doing the right thing on January 6th. And then they all turned around and said they'd support Trump if he were the uh, candidate. It just shows me there's. Very little imagination, little understanding of reality. And like I said, uh, Donald Trump and his toxic craziness will not be around, but there's still plenty of crazy to go around in the Republican Party. 
So what are we going to see at 7.30? Will this just be uh, some black vehicles, and then all of a sudden he's whisked in and then whisked out, and that's it? What, what can we expect? I understand that uh, everybody's waiting for the infamous mugshot. Yeah, I can't wait to see that mugshot. I mean, the rest of them. Did you ever see the uh, the show uh, Supernatural? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> go That's, ahead. I, every every single one of the <laughs> mugshots I've seen so far look like demons from that show. I just they have the black staring so, eyes, or just they look like they were caught in a trance. I, I can't wait to see what uh, dear old Donnie's looks like. But it's going to be an it. Yeah, what you'll get is you're not going to get much. Uh, outside, you're going to see the guy pull up. He'll go inside, probably. He'll come out, and then they'll publish the mugshot. What happens after tonight? Well, they've uh, it, down in Georgia. They uh, Fannie Willis has already, you know, um, it was one of the uh, uh, Chesbro who wanted a uh, quick and speedy trial. So she said, "Okay, fine. We'll we'll do it in October." <laughs> so that's uh, right now. There's going to be a hearing to find out if they're going to hear this case coming up in October. And if they do, I don't suspect that they will. But if they do, that's not good news for Donald Trump or any of the other suspects or or any of his other indicted co-conspirators. I will think that from here on out, depending on how the case moves, you're going to see people uh, flee Donald Trump, fall by the wayside, get flipped and uh, and then testify against him. And I firmly believe that he's headed for a I guess the only way to say it is he's headed for prison. Uh, Rudy Giuliani, what an awkward moment it was the other day watching him in front of the media. Uh, boy, how far that guy's fallen considering post 9-11. Well, yeah, take, take a look at uh, America's mayor. The greatest, yeah. sweetest irony is the fact that he used RICO statutes to go after, um, you know, the mob. And now those RICO statutes are being used to go after him. Uh, what about the others involved here? Will they be the key to this in the sense that they won't go down without taking him down first? Well, you've already seen Donald Trump is not going to look. He he pretends he's a billionaire, but he's always begging people for money every day to pay his bills. Um, he's not a billionaire. He's in desperate financial straits. He's got a lot of uh, bills that he's going to his own. Uh, look, he's got to defend himself in four different jurisdictions for 91 felony charges. That's mm-hmm. not going to be cheap. So what he's not going to be able to do is pay the uh, defense attorneys for all of his other co-conspirators. And once they fall from the Trump uh, outside of the Trump umbrella, they're going to find uh, attorneys that are going to say, listen, you need to think about yourself first and not Don. So cop a plea and, and flip and, and testify against him. And once that starts, it has already started in the Mar-a-Lago case. Remember the uh, IT guy flipped yesterday. Yeah. So once this starts happening in Georgia, I would think that when we finally end up at trial, you're not going to be trying 19 people, you're going to end up with, you know, like probably 17 of them taking a plea deal and probably poor old Rudy hanging on for dear life and getting baked in the process. Brian J. Karam with us, journalist, author, White House correspondent for Playboy political analyst for CNN. 730 tonight, the Donald uh, uh, surrenders. (laughs) Exactly. That's the only thing that's missing here. Brian, thanks so much. All we need is castle thunder or or a big scream. (laughs) All right. Thanks so much. Be well. You too, brother. Talk to you soon. 
Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Mike Moffat was one of the speakers uh, with Prime Minister Trudeau and the cabinet at the retreat in PEI when they were talking about housing issues. They were bringing in experts to, uh, to, to I, I, I guess, um, uh, provide some, some depth to the issue and such. And one of those was Mike Moffat. Let's bring him in to find out what he told them. Mike Moffat, Senior Director of Policy and Innovation, Smart Prosperity Institute, and Assistant Professor in the Business Economics and Public Policy Group, Ivy Business School, Western University, and here now. Mike, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Oh, thank you for having me. And thank you for staying for two segments for this, because uh, uh, we're, we're very appreciative of that, because all of, all, you know, obviously this is quite a, a deep subject and such. But I must admit, Mike, when I heard about the retreat and that they, it was going to center around housing, I thought, oh, okay. And then that they were going to bring in people to speak, I kind of rolled my eyes. And then I heard your name. And I must admit, Mike, I got excited. I felt positive. I thought, this man is going to explain to them exactly what we have to do to turn this thing around mike can save us so uh i know that's putting a lot of pressure on you <laughs> no pressure what, there eh? but what did you tell the cabinet and the prime minister what message did you convey well a, a few things and you know i, I think you, people have heard me uh, on, on the show before and seen some of my, my work so nothing too much of a surprise uh one of the big messages uh to the federal government is that we've been here before that we had a housing supply crisis at the end of world war ii when we had all the uh, veterans return and we can look to policies we used back then by the canadian mortgage and housing corporation uh to uh to address that crisis we we had another one in the late 1960s as immigration went up and the first wave of baby boomers started to leave their their parents houses and uh, wanting apartments or wanting to uh, going to college and university and uh, needing a dorm room. So we had a number of policies back then and tax incentives to get housing built. So my big message to them was look to what we've done in the past that we don't. This is a crisis, but we've had other crises in the past and we don't need to reinvent the wheel here. We can just go back to things that have worked in the past and they would probably work again in the future. Uh, how did we get there? What is different now from those times that you were speaking of? We just we were talking earlier about a neighborhood called Westdale here in Hamilton that was, uh, again, developed the same way. One of the very first planned communities in the country, the first in Hamilton. And that was it started in 1914. And then by the 30s and 40s, it finally saw uh, the light of day. But what's different today than back then? Why, why can't we do it now? So it's a great question. Uh, I, I think part of it is political will, right? That that at the end of uh, World War II, you know, we were kind of in a wartime economy, and uh, uh, you know, we recognized that uh, you know our brave soldiers uh, across the world, you know, we we had to look after them. So you know, it was obvious the right right thing to do. Um, in the 1960s, you know, we knew that the baby boomers were going to reach that age, right? So that gave us a, a couple decades worth of planning. Here, it just feels 
feels like everybody was caught off guard and there wasn't a lot of planning involved that we've seen international student enrollments surge far higher than anybody had forecasted. Uh, We've had a number of, you know, changes to temporary foreign worker programs and uh, and immigration programs that have seen the population surge, but we never really coordinated our housing policy to, to meet that challenge. So we are, you know, this crisis is possibly worse than those in part because we did a much better job of planning back then and i'm hope i'm hopeful that we can again look towards that past that we don't you know this is a choice that we've made uh to to be this disorganized and we really need to do something about it is it lack or was it lack of planning mike or was it the lack of will to plan it seems that the environmental movement has said if you expand you contribute to climate change. And that has been a massive message under this. And and, and, and other than we don't want this in our backyard, uh, it, it seems to have stalled everything. We just don't think, we don't think of prosperity or ambition the same way, you know, I think of Hamilton being the ambitious city. It, 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 now it's, you know, one step forward, two steps back. Um, is, 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 is there the lack of, of planning or the lack of will to plan? They don't want to touch this. Yeah, that, that, that is a part of it that, we, you know, we had three things going on uh, kind of simultaneously that we decided, you know, as a society that we were probably growing out a little too much, uh, yeah. creating a little too much sprawl. Uh, building uh, you know, all the sort of expensive infrastructure that goes around it. So we had kind of decided over the last 20 years that we needed to focus a little bit more on building up than building out. The challenge is that we never changed any of the policies to actually build up uh, very mm. much that, uh, you know, we didn't change the approvals process to allow for more infill development and that kind of thing. So, you know, we had that combination and then coupled with all of a sudden uh, a, a a big surge in population that nobody expected that if our population wasn't growing very much, that wouldn't be much of a problem. The, mm-hmm. the sort of not being able to build up or out, uh, you know, because we'd be just basically, you know, people would leave a home and other people would enter and everything would kind of net out. But, you know, when you're growing uh, in Ontario, I I think last year was about 450,000 people. And traditionally, we've only grown by about 120,000 a year. You know, that creates these these real challenges. So, yeah, it is you know, it is a a lack of planning. And I think some of it was willful, was a set of decisions that we made that uh, perhaps we didn't fully uh, understand the consequences of our actions. So uh, let's talk about your speech or what you the presentation or whatever it is that you did it was the prime minister was the cabinet there um, did you and again we know the problems we've heard your solutions and such did you get the feeling that that, that your solutions were resonating with with anyone well, I, I certainly hope so. Uh, that uh, I, I hope uh, that uh, you know that uh, that that response, uh, you know, that them having us there, I, I think was uh, was a tell. So absolutely, that the uh, the prime minister was there uh, and the entire cabinet and some staff, uh, you know, listened to what we had to say, asked some questions, which we we can't reveal what the the content of those questions are. But I would say that overall, it was it was very well received. Um, you know. 
know, we haven't seen them them act yet, but I, I don't think, you know, the 24 or 48 hours uh, that has been since then is, is enough time to to make that happen. So, you know, I think it's going to be important, you know, for um, us uh, academics and analysts and activists on the ground to, you know, not get too complacent that, yes, you know, they have heard the message, but I think we're going to have to be on all levels of government to, to act uh, for this crisis. I remember on the show you said, uh, and quote me, you know, tell me if I'm wrong, but uh, this is going to take a wartime effort. Those are pretty strong words. That's 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 pretty major stuff. That's everybody, everybody rowing in the same direction. How did that go over? I, I, I think it's well understood. And again, I, I think by by all orders of government now and why I use that, that analogy is, first of all, that you, you need that kind of level of, of effort, but you also need that uh, level of just people coming together at a, at a shared goal. Right. That uh, we uh, we put away the finger pointing. There's been far too much finger pointing of, you know, the province pointing at municipalities and municipalities pointing at somebody else that we're all, as you put it, rowing in the same direction uh, towards that common goal. And even within this, the same uh, you know level of government that I would love to see, whether it's provincially or federally, the opposition put aside whatever differences they have with the government um, and say, OK, you know what? This is a crisis. We have a blueprint here that uh, has been given to us let's work together let's implement these as fast as humanly possible uh, so we can uh, get some shovels in the ground and, and get some homes built for people it seems that there's lots of distractions in this conversation many people say it's very very complex and it is i guess in a sense or the solution is but the problem seems quite simple low supply high demand equals shortage that being said we certainly know in ontario the whole discussion around the green belt i don't want to get too bogged down in that but it seems that it has taken a nibbling of the green belt for it to become uh, uh, evident that there's alternative lands 20 to 40 years worth and i've had many experts say this before you even have to touch the green belt whether it's boundary lands uh, uh white belt whatever you want to call it it's drawn attention to the fact that well if we're not you know supposed to nibble at the green belt why the heck have we not developed the other alternative lands what do we have to do to get those alternative lands moving forward and and obviously if that had been done we wouldn't be in a shortage situation yeah, absolutely. And I think that's what we have to look at. And I think we have to identify almost on a project by project level, like why aren't those getting getting built? And there, there's a few reasons why that some of it is labor shortages that uh, we don't have enough skilled trades workers. Um, so our uh, national housing accord that uh, we put together. Uh, a few of us identify that as an issue and then provide some solutions around workforce development and changes to immigration programs. So that's part of it. Part of it is that some of these projects just aren't viable at higher interest rates. Yeah. Um, it's killing a lot of projects. The last estimate I saw is that 22% of all apartment projects that were were developed are, are no longer going through because high interest rates. The government can do something with that, give preferential funding 
uh, to long-term funding to some of these projects. It can lower the cost by uh, removing the HST and introducing some tax credits, just like we had in the 1960s to get apartments built. So that's a piece of the puzzle. And then the approvals process, and that's all levels uh, of government. So that's municipal approvals, you know, zoning and all that kind of fun stuff. That's the provincial level with uh, the Ontario Light Land Tribunal and, and, and other agencies. But that's also the federal government. We have thousands of great projects that are being held up right now by the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation, thousands of uh, apartment projects that they're with this program called MLI Select uh, that provide, it's a really great program, provides uh, insurance um, and financing for these projects. But the wait list now is something like eight to 12 months. So the federal government needs to do what it did on passports when there was a backlog there. Just get more staff mm. in that office to uh, to get these approvals through. We need to see the same thing at the CMHC, that we've got developers and builders who want to build these things. All they're missing is insurance. And the reason why they're missing it is they've got some some application just sitting at the CMHC that hasn't gone through yet. It seems that uh, it's easy just to blame the developer for this. And you certainly brought up a great example. And we've certainly heard that developments have stopped just because with interest rates, the projects have now, they're just not feasible. They just, they, 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 we just can't afford them anymore. Uh, and, and that is a, certainly a, a legitimate issue. But it seems that the developers are the scapegoats. They're doing this. They're doing that. In the At the end of the day, isn't it the government that supplies the rules and regulations, the rules of engagement for these developers? So if the developer aren't doing something that they like or don't like or what can't they fix that can't they change that yeah they they absolutely uh, they absolutely can and i think a lot of it is just trying to, to work together with developers and, and builders and find out what's what's going on and a lot of times it's it's you know the approvals process or interest rates being uh too high uh, there was a great uh, project that got stalled. It was this very environmentally friendly net zero uh, project, you know, low carbon construction um, based on electrification. And they couldn't get enough electricity to the site to, to make the, the building viable. So there, you know, you're looking at issues around Hydro One. So it's all of these little things that, that hold up development. Are there bad developers and builders? Yeah, absolutely. And if there are ones that are just hoarding land, you know, the government has tools to deal with that as well. But ultimately, absolutely, that the government sets the rules of the game. And if the current rules aren't working, then they need to look at, at changing those rules. How did you feel this all went? Summarize it. Um, obviously, lots has been said about how this all of a sudden was the focus of, of the retreat. And at the end, there was no real concrete uh, solution. Is there something they could have said that, boom, this will change things immediately? Is there is there a switch you can flip that, uh, of course, you, you can't fix this overnight, but at least will get the momentum going in the right direction? Are you disappointed we didn't see something like that? A little bit, yeah. So was I expecting immediate policies? No, I was not expecting, say, the prime minister to come out of the room three hours later and say, you know what, Moffat's right, and we're going to get rid of the HST. <laughs> you know, that yeah. that's going to take some some time to get to happen. One thing I would like to see, though, is that we had been calling on the government to have their own national housing accord where they bring together different orders of government and the nonprofit sector and builders and developers. The prime minister was asked about that the next day, and he didn't rule it out. But he didn't firmly commit to it either. I'm hoping that that's the next step, that over the next few days, few weeks, what have you, uh, the, the, the prime minister and the federal government 
you know, they say that they're going to take leadership on this. And, you know, I, I hope and believe that's true. I think that first step is to say, OK, we are taking leadership on this. So we're going to have a meeting in Ottawa three weeks from now. We're inviting the premiers. We're inviting some mayors. And this thing's going to this thing's going to happen. That's what I'm hoping to see very, very soon. Sounds a lot like healthcare, Mike. Well, that's just it. Well, they have a model yeah. for it. They have yeah. a, the, the health care accords are that model. When uh, the federal government introduced their $10 a day daycare, that's what they did. So this is not anything that we said to them in, in these reports or th- things like that. There's We're not promoting anything novel. There are things that either they've done in housing or they've done in areas like healthcare. So you're absolutely right. Mike Moffitt with us, Senior Director of Policy and Innovation, Smart Prosperity Institute, and Assistant Professor in the Business Economics and Public Policy Group, Ivy Business School, Western University. Mike, thank you so much for the time. Thank you for taking the time to explain it to all, uh, to us all, and even those in Ottawa. Much appreciated. Be well. Good luck. Well, thank you for having me. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com.